Last Sunday, we, I, I preached about baptism because the readings, all of them, as a matter of fact, were about uh, the centrality of baptism, the water of life, the story in Exodus of Moses uh, with the murmuring people of Israel, striking the rock and having the, the living stream of water flow from it. Uh, and in the gospel, the long reading about um, the woman at the well where Jesus says, I'm going to give you the living water, and uh, it's the process of understanding God's... Last week, that's what I'm saying. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to give us the same sermon. No, I would have... (laughs) That would have just... It would have just been marching from one horror to the next. (laughs) I was doing... A little recapitulation. (laughs) And as you know, whenever I have the opportunity, (laughs) recapitulation. I love the word. So anyway, we're going to talk about baptism again. You know, that's one of the foci of the season of Lent. Uh, In the ancient church, it was the time when there was the final preparation for those to be baptized on Easter. The penitential aspect of Lent really came into its own after the Constantinian settlement in the 4th century when everybody was pretty much baptized. And so we now had to focus on some other things, which was reconnecting to the baptismal promises. So you can understand this season in two ways. But today, the way in which we talk about baptism, particularly in Ephesians and in the Gospel, is about light and God's illuminative processes at work in our hearts and our in our mental spiritual and emotional states and how we understand what this business of enlightenment and illumination means so I thought I'd talk about both that was another one of these long gospels the story of the man born blind so it's an opportunity to give you some 3995 biblical scholarship, both about Ephesians and about John's gospel. So you have some idea of the setting and the context. And another affirmation of my teacher, O.C. Edwards, my New Testament professor, one of them, that it's not as important what the Bible says as what the Bible means. And so you and I need to be students of the biblical text and to understand all of the issues around this. Ephesians is one of the epistles that is attributed to St. Paul that uh, very probably is what in biblical scholarship we call Deuteropauline. That is to say, it was written by a disciple of Paul's rather than Paul himself. There is another theory which doesn't have many adherents but is not too unreasonable is that in the case of Ephesians, it was a combination of Paul and his uh, disciples that produced uh, the final product uh, of Ephesians. And uh, some of you may say, who cares? And some of you may say, how dare you? But this is important and why it makes a difference. Uh, The Christian church, as it emerged and is, is described as emerging in its earliest literature, the first class in New Testament I took at Neshota House was called The Emergence of the Christian Movement in its Earliest Literature. 
So we're thinking now about how the church emerges in its earliest literature and as it continues, how does it address and cope with the pastoral realities on the ground as the community of faith called church. The earliest writing in the New Testament are Paul's letters. And the earliest of those is 1 Thessalonians, which dates from about 48 to 50 AD. That is a generation after Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and ascended into heaven. And so Ephesians is being written now to address certain pastoral realities that have become part of their faith and life. And that's why it's important, because we begin to see, even in the Deuteropauline writings, still some of the earliest writing in the New Testament, the apostolic continuity of what is being said. And Paul today is concerned about the issues, or who, whoever wrote Ephesians, uh, being concerned about what it is to understand the power of baptism. And he is now speaking in the language of the early Christian church, saying that baptism is a species of enlightenment. We are now children of light as opposed to children of darkness. And one of the things that we, have, we are affected by when we are baptized, or rather affects us, is the ability now to have a greater and deeper moral and ethical clarity. So when you think about what it means to be enlightened or the, the illuminative processes of God at work, it has something to do with seeing more clearly with regard to how you should act in relationship. And clear thinking also begins to allow you to be and to maintain the non-anxious presence in the midst of the anxiety and reactivity of other people. And so somehow that process creates now a moral and ethical sensibility. And the writer today is speaking about that as being children of light. And now that we will know, by virtue of that, uh, to avoid some of the things that before we did when we were in the dark. You know, an amusing way to say this was, I remember years and years ago, there was a Dennis the Menace cartoon where Dennis the Menace said, you know, if I knew the things I know now at eight years old, uh, when I was three or four, I would have done a lot of things differently. <laughs> So maybe that has to do, in a way, with how we get clearer about what it is, about ordinary and commonplace activities. The process, in his case, of socialization. Remember, we talked a few weeks ago about the early Christian church sitting around having big debates on things like, did Jesus go through a moral development? You know? You start this business about, well, Jesus is God, and... So on. Well, did he go through a moral development like any child? Did he have to get, to get up and brush your teeth? And the conclusion that they came to was, yes, he did. He was a human being. He had to go through a process of moral development, just like we did. He was everywhere that we have been. So Ephesians today speaks now about baptism, the sacramental life, 
as being a way on a regular basis to encounter this enlightenment process. So you and I can do that by virtue of our participation in the liturgy, by virtue of reading the Bible and thinking and praying about it, by virtue of saying our prayers, by virtue of sitting quietly with God and reflecting about your circumstances. There's a wonderful chapter in John McQuarrie's little book called Paths and Spirituality. He was a Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Oxford, and, he, and the title of the chapter is Prayer as Thinking. Prayer as Thinking. You know? Archbishop Anthony Bloom, the great Russian Orthodox bishop in Paris and in England, said prayer is a piece of straight thinking about God. So when you think about how that addresses the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you, these illuminative processes are important. The writer, the author of Ephesians' main theme in the whole of the epistle is the unity of the body of Christ. And that means this unity is understood relationally and corporately, one with another, and the seeking through our prayer and through the Spirit of God, which Paul tells us last week, we receive through our baptism hope, peace, and participation in Christ. And through those processes, we begin now to understand uh, a way of uh, unifying the disparate forces that operate in us internally, emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. The committee that lives rent-free in your head. Okay? Your personal demons. And somehow we're able to keep those somewhat at bay as we live our lives. So that's really what Ephesians is setting us up for. But the main act this week is the reading from John's Gospel. So let me say some introductory things about that. Uh, not even wildly liberal biblical scholars would accept the view these days that John's Gospel had two major sources or at, the, to write the Gospel. In other words, written sources that were put together to form the final form of the gospel uh, that came from the oral tradition were written down. They were collected and put together as the gospel. And one of these sources is called the signs source. In fact, when I was in seminary, John Fortna uh, reconstructed it and wrote a book called The Gospel of Signs. And it contains the sign source that was used uh, for John's gospel. The sign source is the signs of the miracles that Jesus performed, the healings and the other mighty works. And the other piece of the formation of this gospel was from the sayings source. So when you read John, open, some, open your Bible, re, start to read John, and you'll see Jesus is performing these mighty miracles and then yakking about them. Talking, talk, 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 a discourse. Then another miracle and then a description, a long description about what it is. So today we have number six of the seven major signs that he performed. So just so you know what they are, and you can amaze your friends, keep it on ice. 
the turning the water into wine at the wedding in Cana is sign one. The healing of the nobleman's son. The healing of the palsied man. By the way, the, the pool that he was healed in, and the one they found that archaeologically just within the last 25 years, they found these places, the real places. The feeding of the 5,000, the storm on the lake and Jesus walking on the sea, the healing of the blind man, today's gospel, and the raising of Lazarus. So these are the seven major signs. There are others in John's gospel that are part of the sign source, but these are the ones that are sort of the highlights. So we have heard today from major sign number six, and it's got a lot in it. A man who was born blind, blind from birth, is healed by Jesus. And just as in some other places in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus does a manipulation. He spits, makes mud, rubs it on the blind man's eyes, and tells him to go to the pool of Siloam, which means scent. An interesting thing we'll come back to if I remember. And he washes and he has his sight. This, this pattern, by the way, was a common practice among uh, wandering healers in the time of Jesus. He, he, doesn't, do the, he doesn't perform manipulations uh, all the time, but he does some, which would make him uh, you know, understandable by people who think about wandering healers and miracle workers. So the man gains his sight. Now here's the rub. It's always true in religious circles, isn't it? There is a group of people we call the Pharisees, who are out of joint about this because Jesus performed this healing on the Sabbath. And that is forbidden. Let me just say this. By the time of John's Gospel, the issue of the Jews has loomed large. This is why John's Gospel is risky for many. But there's a reason for this. By the time of the writing of John's Gospel, we had begun the earnest partings of the ways between Judaism and uh, Christianity. And those Jews who believed in the Messiahship of Jesus and had heretofore worshipped in the synagogue were now being excluded from the synagogue. And there, there are some, uh, in the synagogue liturgy, there are 18 benedictions, or in that liturgy that you said, and there was uh, one inserted which uh, no faithful believer in Jesus could say in good conscience. And if it was known that they did in fact believe in the Messiahship of Jesus, they were uh, removed from the synagogue. And this is why they're afraid of the Jews today in this gospel. That never would have been said in the time of Jesus. Never. So this blind man is being, who now sees is being questioned by the Pharisees for, break, for, for being healed by Jesus, who can't possibly be from God because he performed this healing on the Sabbath day and broke the law. And the blind man finds this incredible. 
and said, all I know is that I received my sight and here's how it happened. So the Pharisees go to the parents and they ask the parents, uh, are you, was he really born blind? And they said, yes, he was born blind, but talk to him, not us. He can answer for himself. He's a big boy and he can uh, answer your questions. So they return and they come back and he affirms that Jesus is a prophet and he is excommunicated from the synagogue. I think the Greek word I can't read is apostasynagogos or something like that. You're thrown out. So that's what, that's what happened. So then he meets Jesus again. And he tells him, Jesus, that Jesus in John's gospel is like this. He tells him that he is the son of man. And this guy said he believes in him. And then he says this cryptic thing that I, I, I don't know how to kind of explain. I'll give you what my take on it is. And it's like Jesus said, I came here to make people who see blind and to make blind people see. And you think, what? What I think is that Jesus' teaching confirms people in their prejudices one way or another. And there are some people who aren't going to listen no matter what. The famous Ralph Qualls statement, you cannot use reason to reason someone out of a position they did not use reason to get into. <laughs> It is not possible, right? So my grandfather had another aphorism he would always say when we were driving home from work in the car if he wanted to use it. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. <laughs> so I expect if Jesus was clear about who he was and what he meant, there are those who are not going to accept it and they are going to remain blind. While those who are open to the illuminative process of God will get it. And it's interesting because what we see in this section of John's Gospel is the language that the early Christian church used to refer to baptism. Even though baptism is not mentioned Explicitly, photismos means enlightened, to be, is illumination. And that's what they call baptism. John's Gospel was written about 90 AD, and in other non biblical writings like Justin Martyr and some of the other uh, books that date around that time that we possess, that's the term they use for baptism. Photismos, just like here. So it was a term that was used frequently by the early Christian church. This week, I would say the assignment ought to be, uh, think about the times when you have experienced some species of enlightenment. We say that what makes that possible is the Spirit of God. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. So when you think about this, don't just think about it in religious terms. Think about it in the ways in which you have come 
to a clearer and surer focus with regard to uh, who you are and what you're going to do. And that's what God's illuminative process is all about. And in a sense, we celebrate that on this Sunday in Lent. Amen. Amen.